Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's Weekly Speakers Podcast. This week, we are joined by Marla Spivak, a research fellow at CID's Building State Capability Program and the research manager of the Research on Improving Systems of Education, RISE, program. We will be talking about RISE's research on diagnosing education systems in the context of international development. I'm sitting down with Marla after her appearance at the CID Speaker Series at Harvard Kennedy School on February 21st, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, I'm really happy to be here. So for those listening, would you mind giving us a brief summary of your background and your research and how you got into this field? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been working in international development pretty much my whole professional career. I had the opportunity to work on migration and development with researchers at the Center for Global Development in Washington, D.C. I've also worked on social protection and rural development in Zambia and India. And after doing my graduate degree here at the Kennedy School, I started working as the research manager of the RISE program. Can you introduce us to the RISE program? What does RISE focus on and what are some of the key questions that RISE is exploring? RISE is a multi-country research initiative. It's been going on for about five years now and it's trying to understand the reasons why countries are facing a learning crisis and what they can do to improve learning outcomes at a systemic level. We're a collection of seven country research teams. So we have teams that work in India, Indonesia, Vietnam, Pakistan, Tanzania, Ethiopia, and Nigeria. And the Pakistan team is actually based here at the CID's Evidence for Policy Design. And all of our teams are focused on understanding education systems as systems and understanding how countries can improve learning outcomes for all. The RISE program makes a distinction between schooling and education. Can you explain how they're different and what are some of the things the RISE program has learned so far about the learning crisis? Yeah, this is a really important question. So education systems can have a lot of different objectives. And you can even think about yourself in this context. What are some of the things that you got out of your own schooling experience? You probably made friends, you built social skills, you built soft skills, and then of course you also built hard skills in reading and math and science, literature, a lot of different things that can be achieved by an education system. And the RISE program, you know, we don't want to make a normative judgment about what those priorities are. Also values education, right? For some people, learning about religion or having patriotism in their state is also something important that they get out of their education. And those are decisions for parents to make about their children and for national governments to make about what their priorities are for their country. But it's pretty easy to build a universal consensus that basic reading and math should be one of the things that an education system provides and that basic literacy and numeracy are core competencies that children need to be productive members of their societies, be good citizens, and eventually one day maybe to be good parents to their own children. When we talk about learning in the context of RISE, we usually mean you know basic literacy and numeracy. And some of the teams understand this a little bit differently in their own context as well. Whereas schooling is just the number of years that children are spending in school. And sometimes we talk about this in terms of access, which is just do students have you know the ability to ever attend school and attainment, which are the number of years that they spend in school. And we wanna draw this distinction that Unfortunately, in a lot of countries, students are spending years sitting in schools, but they're not even getting the most basic literacy and numeracy skills that they need. And when they fail to get those in the first few years, they often have a very hard time catching up because once the curriculum moves beyond teaching basic reading and math, it then builds on the assumption that they have those skills. And if they didn't get them at the beginning, they're left sitting in classrooms where they don't understand what's going on, which is a really sad thing to think about if you think about it at the level of an individual child. 
And then you asked me about some things that we're learning about the learning crisis. And again, this is sort of when we, we talk about it, we think of it as this phenomenon of the expansion of schooling and yet the, the low learning outcomes that we still see in a lot of countries around the world. So some of the things that we're learning about it from across the RISE countries and our different teams are just how bad it really is. World Bank has been doing a lot in the last year or two building on the 2018 World Development Report, which focused on education, and then again the 2019 Development Report, which focused on human capital, and education is a really important part of human capital development, so those two go hand in hand. But just last year, the bank also came out with a new measure that they are now talking about a lot, which is learning poverty. And the way that they've defined learning poverty is the proportion of 10-year-olds in a country who can read a simple text by the time that they get to age 10. And the bank has done this assessment and tried to compile it for as many countries as possible. And they found that 53% of children in low and middle income countries are not able to read a simple text by the time they get to the end of primary school. And that in poor countries, it could be as high as 80%. So again, the severity of the crisis is one thing that we're seeing. Something else that we're seeing when we look across countries is that there's this hope that if we could equalize outcomes, then we would make significant progress against the learning crisis. So there's an understanding or a feeling that we might have that a problem that countries face is disparities within country, maybe differences between the rich and the poor, or differences between different social groups that are more or less marginalized, differences between boys and girls. But if we look across countries in data from assessments like Asser in India or Oweso in East Africa, we, we can do the analysis and see that closing the gaps between income groups or between boys and girls doesn't get us a whole lot in terms of achieving universal goals. And the reason for that is even the more advantaged groups, the relatively well-off or you know the gender advantaged in a particular context, they're also not having great results. And so closing the gap between them, even if you bring the poor up to the level of the rich, if the rich aren't doing so well, then you closed that gap, but you haven't made a lot of progress on a universal literacy or numeracy goal. Just to say one more thing, you know, one of the main takeaways from RISE so far is doing more of the same things that we're already doing isn't going to be enough to solve the learning crisis. And just to take one example from our Indonesia team, Amanda Beatty and some co-authors used a panel data set in Indonesia to try to see how learning outcomes evolved across the country over a period of time when spending on school increased dramatically. So there was a panel that covered the period between 2000 and 2014, and that was a period where they saw from the panel data that enrollment in secondary school increased by 20%, and they know from the policy environment that spending on education overall increased a lot in Indonesia, and also teacher salaries basically doubled during that time. And despite all of those efforts, they saw that there was only a 0.2 percentage point increase in the percent correct on a simple math test that was administered as part of that panel. So all of those resources that went into trying to improve the quality of education in Indonesia essentially had no effect. So just spending more money or doing the thing, Indonesia was doing more of the same things, wasn't enough to solve the learning crisis there. Researchers leading the RISE program take a systems approach to understanding education. How does RISE understand education systems and what is unique about this approach? It's an intuitive thing that obviously for learning outcomes to improve, we need to change interactions between individual teachers and students. And if learning outcomes are going to improve at scale, that means changing interactions between teachers and students in millions of classrooms around the world. But in order to do that, and do that at a scale that's going to close these gaps that we see between rich countries and poor countries, which are just kind of overwhelming, we need to acknowledge that 
those teachers and students are embedded in larger systems and the way that they're interacting is the result of the pressures that they face from the systems that they're embedded in. And so unpacking that and having a way to define and parameterize the system that they're embedded in to make it visible can help us understand why we're seeing the outcomes that we're seeing. And to try to illustrate what I mean, I'm gonna use an analogy. If someone's feeling sick, you might first think of addressing their symptoms one by one. If they have a fever, you might try to give them an ice bath to bring their fever down. If they're feeling cold, you might give them a sweater. If they're feeling sweaty, you might put them in front of the air conditioner. So if you were to list out all of their symptoms and try to address them one by one, you might make them feel a little bit better temporarily, but you wouldn't cure the underlying disease that was making them sick. And also, as you can kind of see in this example, it becomes a little bit counterproductive. If you don't have an overall theory of the disease that's making them sick and you just try to knock the symptoms off one by one, you end up doing things that are at cross purposes with each other. It doesn't make any sense to put someone in front of an air conditioner and give them a sweater, even though it's obvious that a fever is the thing that's causing both of those symptoms. And once you know the disease that's causing those symptoms, you can come up with the effective treatment for it. So one thing you might want to do is know, are they sick because of a virus or because of some sort of bacterial infection? Because if it's a virus, there might not be much else you can do and you just want to give them fluids and make them comfortable, maybe give them a Tylenol or something and bring down their fever. If they have a bacterial infection, you'd give them an antibiotic. But the thing is, you wouldn't want to give them the antibiotic if what they had was a virus because the antibiotic treatment has some other risks. It's not a risk-free intervention. And so giving it to someone who doesn't need it is not just counterproductive, but it can actually be dangerous. And moreover than that, you don't only have to have the right treatment for the disease that's making the person sick. You need to have a treatment that is coherent or makes sense for the entire body system of that human being who you're trying to treat. So someone with a bacterial infection and an allergy to amoxicillin shouldn't get amoxicillin, they should get some other antibiotic, or maybe there's no antibiotic they can have, and you, you don't give them anything, and you treat them the same way you treat the person with the flu. So what that has to do with is not just having the right diagnosis, but also having a plan for an intervention that's coherent with the system that you're working in. And we can say the same thing about education systems. When you go into a dysfunctional education system, you see so many things that are wrong. And the first temptation is to say, we found something that's missing, we're gonna try to fix it. We see a symptom, we treat it. We see that there are no textbooks, we buy new textbooks. We see that school management is bad, we design a management training program to try to give principals and district officers the tools that they need to make sure that teachers are showing up on time and doing what they need to be doing in schools. But so often, going through and addressing these problems symptom by symptom ends up resulting in interventions that might work in a very narrow sense or sometimes even don't work at all because they're not coherent with the overall system that they're embedded in. So to bring it to a very concrete example in education, there's a famous paper by Michael Kramer from 2009 where he and co-authors gave textbooks to randomly selected group of schools in Kenya. A random selection of schools got textbooks and a random selection of schools didn't get textbooks. And these were the textbooks that were the ones that were supposed to be used as part of the standard Kenyan curriculum. And they went away for a while and they came back and they tested the students and they found that on average, there was no effect of the textbooks on student learning outcomes. And if you go and read the paper for the sort of explanations they hypothesized for why this might have happened, they point out that actually, you know, the textbooks that were the ones that were required by the education system were written in English. And most of the students in these schools weren't very comfortable reading in English. So they had a tool now at their disposal which should have helped improve their learning, 
but because it was not the right tool for their situation, it wasn't able to help them. So when we talk about understanding education systems and what we mean by a systems approach, we mean uncovering these inconsistencies and incoherences in a system to understand why things are the way that they are, why they aren't working, and move beyond just the proximate determinant of a poor outcome, which is students don't have books, to understanding the proximate determinant of that proximate determinant, which is they're so far behind in the standard Kenyan curriculum that the curriculum expects them to be reading and writing sufficiently in English to use an English textbook, but they're not even there yet. And so having a textbook is not gonna be a tool that they're able to use, and they're so far behind the curriculum that even with that book, even if they could read it, just reading the book isn't gonna be enough to catch them up. So Mozambique recently, I was doing a paper and 80% of fourth grade teachers have mastered 1% of the content knowledge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm really curious and fascinated about how organizations are working with teachers within a country to boost their knowledge in mm -hmm. order to address this learning crisis that's going on mm -hmm. and how you deal with that from a sustainability perspective when countries are already putting 80% of their educational budget towards teacher salaries. That's a really interesting and important question. And I think, again, it comes back to the issue of coherence. If you're thinking, if and, and the fact is that we are going to solve the learning crisis with the teachers that we have. So any organization that wants to try to intervene to improve outcomes for, let's say, fourth graders in Mozambique needs to take the first step of acknowledging they're going to do that with the teachers that they have. And then the next thing that they need to do is if they're going to design an intervention that's going to be implemented by Mozambican teachers, they need to design an intervention that the folks who are Mozambican teachers have the capability to implement. So again, it's about understanding the context that you're operating in and thinking about what are the binding constraints in that context and how can they be alleviated given the resources and the conditions that, that you're facing on the ground. So the RISE framework emphasizes accountability. Can you explain what accountability means in the context of RISE work? I'm really glad to have the opportunity to answer this question because I think sometimes when folks hear that RISE has an accountability framework, they think that we're about sanctioning teachers or rewarding, you know, doing more rewards for performance or sanctions for bad performance or having MIS systems that track every single thing that goes on in the education system and building hard accountability all around that. And that's not what we mean. When we say that RISE has an accountability framework, what we mean is that we have a way of understanding the education system that's rooted in naming all of the actors in the system and defining the relationships between them. And a useful way to define those relationships, what we call an accountability relationship, is the sort of classic model of a principal-agent relationship. And so what we say is that the education system, and this is building on a framework that was first introduced in the 2004 World Development Report, which we have a specification of that for education, and it says that you can understand the system as a relationship, as four relationships of accountability. The relationship between citizens who would like to see some education happen in their country and politicians or the executive authority of the state that they delegate the governance responsibility to. We call that relationship politics. 
And there's the relationship between the executive and fiduciary authority of the state, the government, uh, the core sort of executive authority of the government, and the specific agency within government that's responsible for delivering education services. So it's not that office of the president is the one out running the school system. There's a particular agency or set of agencies in government that have that responsibility, and they're in relationship with the executive and you know finance components of government, and we call that relationship compact. Then it's not that the Minister of Education is the one in every classroom around the country teaching the students. There's a relationship between the organization that's responsible for providing education services and the frontline providers, district officers, head teachers, and teachers that are actually in classrooms around a country teaching students every day. We call that relationship management. And then finally, the politics relationship that we just described is what we can call the long route of accountability. So citizens, maybe if it's a democracy, voting for a particular candidate on an education platform is one way that they can express their preferences for the education system. But another way that parents and students indicate what they want out of the education system is not that long route, but a short route directly to the principal of the school where their child is, or even to the child's teacher in in the classroom. And we call that relationship voice or client power. And so we say that understanding all of these four different relationships of accountability and how they function, how they interact with each other, can help us understand why the education system functions the way that it does. So those are the actors and the relationships between them. And so then to understand those relationships more fully, we say that they each have five design elements that can help us understand how they function. And again, this is a relationship of accountability. So it's the same thing as if you ask someone to make you a sandwich. If I'm gonna ask you to make me a sandwich, how do I need to go about doing that? Well, I need to tell you what kind of sandwich I want. That's delegation. I need to give you the resources to make the sandwich. If the actual cost of production of the sandwich is $5 and I'm only willing to pay for, I'm gonna be missing one of the elements of the sandwich that I want. We call that finance. I need to make sure that you have the capability to make sandwiches. If you don't know how to cut the vegetables in the way that I want or how to make the dressing that I want, I can't expect you to do it, so I would need to make sure that you have the training to do the thing I'm asking you to do, and we call that support. I would need to make sure that I evaluated how well you made the sandwich. It's pretty easy to eat a sandwich, um, so that's information to know how you did. And finally, we need motivation. I need to make your well-being contingent on how well you do the job, which is like a salary um, or like the profit that you're you're making on the sandwich in this case. So we can think about the same thing in the context of education systems. If the Ministry of Education is asking teachers to provide education services to students, they need to articulate what it is they want teachers to do, delegate, they need to finance teachers appropriately to do the thing. That's both the teacher's salaries and also whatever other resources and materials they need. They need to make sure that the teachers have the capability, which goes to your question earlier about you know, teachers in Mozambique not even mastering the basics of the curriculum that they are supposed to be teaching their students. They obviously don't have the capability to do something that they've been delegated, so that's an incoherence. The Ministry of Education needs to collect information about teachers' performance. So the types of information that they collect can tell us a lot about what it is that they value and where they're putting their time and attention. Are they collecting information about learning outcomes or are they only collecting information about enrollment? That tells you even if they're verbally delegating a learning objective, if they're not collecting any information about learning outcomes, they're not able to evaluate how teachers are doing 
at actually delivering learning. And finally, motivation. How are they motivating teachers to deliver education services? You know, are they only motivating them around an attendance goal or are they actually motivating them around a learning goal? And I think, you know, this is where you get into all sorts of things about intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. The education system may, in fact, be much more set up around an intrinsic motivation and trying to inculcate teachers, you know, with a sense of, you know, a, a professional norms around providing good education services. In some systems, that might be more important than the extrinsic motivation of teacher salaries or any other type of reward. So taking those two things together, the different relationships of accountability and the five different design elements, we can come up with a characterization of the education system. Once you start to think through this framework, you can see how it helps raise some of the incoherences and inconsistencies. So to come back to the Mozambique example, like we were talking about, the Mozambican curriculum is at one level up here, I'm holding my hand up high, and the level of teacher capability is down here at another level. When we apply this framework, that difference becomes apparent, and then we can start to think about how are we gonna problem solve around that problem that the framework has helped us identify. And to bring it back to Rai's work more concretely, each of our different country teams, like I mentioned at the beginning, Indonesia, Vietnam, Ethiopia, etc. So each of those teams has their own research agenda. They're not all answering exactly the same questions, but all of their agendas are exploring different aspects of these relationships of accountability. And so it's a research agenda that's coherent because it's all speaking to the same framework, not because we have teams in every country doing exactly the same studies across all of the countries. So RISE isn't necessarily generalizing these frameworks, these relationships amongst the countries that you mentioned you're working in or future countries that you're going to work in. We're trying to understand more about how education systems function. And we think that there's a lot you can learn from country cases. I mean, you have to operate at some level of analysis and you have to try to do a little bit of generalization. Mm -hmm. What we're not trying to do is study exactly the same intervention in two different countries and say, okay, this worked here and it didn't work there. Today at CID, you spoke about your work on education systems diagnostics. Can you tell us more about this project? What are education diagnostics and how can they be useful? So education systems diagnostics and the project that we're trying to do with them at RISE is essentially taking that framework I just outlined with the principles and the agents and the different elements of the relationship of accountability and applying it to trying to understand and explain why an education system is experiencing the symptoms of the learning crisis that it's experiencing. So there's a lot of assessments out there of education systems, and there's a couple of different diagnostic tools that are being circulated. And you know, I think the unique contribution of our tool is to try to go from what are essentially a list of those symptoms that we were talking about before, the lack of textbooks, the poor teacher attendance, the sort of problems in the curriculum or teacher capability, to go from a list of all of those symptoms to a diagnosis of what's actually making the system sick in the first place. And those diagnoses that we think about are different possible alignments of the system. So a lot of systems of education around the world are aligned around expanding access and uh, attainment or the number of years that students are enrolled in school. Some systems of education are aligned for other purposes. Maybe they mostly have a socialization objective or maybe they're really focused on being good barbarian bureaucracies and process compliance. And a lot of the support functions like HR and finance have actually become more important than the technical core of doing education and teaching students in that system. So our education diagnostic is an approach to try to understand which of those alignments are dominant in an education system, and then to go from there to think about what changes could be made that would try to shift the system to be more coherent for 
a learning objective. So it's something that we're actively developing right now and you can you know, follow Rise to continue to learn more about how the work evolves. But the ultimate goal is to go from having that characterization of an education system to helping countries to prioritize where they might want to intervene to shift towards a greater alignment for learning. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sitting and speaking with me here today. You can find more information about Marla's work at RISE on Twitter at Marla Spivak or on at RISE program, which is the British spelling way. To learn more about CID's research, events, and upcoming speaker series lectures, visit us at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week.